This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. What's the big deal? What's the big deal? Uh, a couple of years ago, that kind of question was being asked with a little bit more of a, uh, maybe a different tone, you might say. You know, in the wake of the um, Supreme Court's decision to uh, legalize same-sex marriage and with popular films like Fifty Shades of Grey coming out and so forth, um, there seemed to be that question in the air, and it seemed to be asked with a sense of annoyance indignation, maybe even uh, derision. There was a general sense that the Christian community, with all their restrictions on sexuality and so forth, was just too outdated. That it was the 21st century, after all. Do you remember that? Do you remember that? That we needed to get with the times. Although I'm sure that at times that question is still being asked with that that same kind of sentiment, uh, it would seem that there's been some amount of change, that with the advent of the hashtag uh, MeToo movement, uh, with the realization of just how many people have become victims of a culture with an unhinged sexual ethic, with court cases on polygamy advancing, uh, with Netflix's sensation of cuties, there seems to be a new tone emerging, a tone that's asking this question more genuinely of what is the big deal? Why does marriage and sex matter so much? What kind of restrictions do we really need? In church, I believe that in this moment, we need to seize upon this issue. In this season, in this climate, we need to answer those questions. That even though this is a, this is a hot topic, for sure, we need to go here. We need to be offering answers to those around us. We need to be showing and sharing with others who are in desperate need of solid ground, some solid answers to important questions. But we also need to be offering those answers to one another. Whether you are watching this online or you are in here today and are married, dating, engaged, living together or other, we need to be hearing these answers too. On top of that, in addressing these kinds of questions of what's the big deal, why does God care who you sleep with, our, our, our answers need to be thoughtful. They need to be framed across generations of teens and adults and, yes, senior citizens. We have to see how these answers are shaped by the gospel, which offers true satisfaction to everyday situations in spite of all the complications. Well, I don't know about you, when I hear all of that, I just think, wow, there's a lot going on right there. Don't you? This is, this is a tall order to deal with, isn't it? 
But you know what? That's what you and I are being faced with. This is the state of things. This is what you and I are being faced with. And so this morning, I invite you to press into this with me, and we're going to attempt to see what we can do to address some of these questions. And here's how we're going to approach things. We're going to approach things in humility, because last time I checked, this is a safe place for sinners, not for sin, but for sinners, because we have a a Savior who said something about this, right? That, That he who is without sin cast the first stone. And so this is a safe place for one another, because we will treat one another with nothing else, nothing less than respect, gentleness, truth, and humility. Amen? So in humility, we're going to build a framework. And we're going to start with the foundational truth, and then we're going to see a working principle that we can hang on to, and then finally we're going to top it off with how it could apply to some specific situations within marriage and sex. And So we're going to see this this morning from the book of Hebrews chapter 13. I invite you to turn there with me. Hebrews 13. You'll find this in the New Testament, last tenth of the Bible, uh, right before the, the book of James. And we're going to walk through this passage this morning together, and we're going to take it uh, one verse at a time. So we're going to begin here in chapter 13 with verse 1. It says this, Let brotherly love continue. This first sentence, as we look at it here, it acts as a header for this whole section. There's going to be four commands that will follow out of this first sentence of brotherly love, and it's going to show us how to go about showing that kind of love. Then it's going to go on. Verse 2, we see our first command. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Uh, This here is a nod to Genesis chapter 18 with Abraham and so forth. But but take note, 2,000 years ago, people were still nervous about having others over to their house. They, They were still worried about, you know, whether or not they swept out all the cobwebs out of the corners and so forth. People were nervous about this and maybe even more so, and rightfully so, about strangers, about other people that they didn't know. Um, Yet hospitality practiced correctly that there is love present here, that's showing practical kindness to people. And here, yes, even with strangers, is that aspect of Christian love. Christian love shows kindness to strangers. Verse 3 then gives us a second way. It says, uh, remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. Or earlier in the book of Hebrews in chapter 10, verse 32, we find that the Christians who were being addressed in this letter here, that they had uh, been uh, under persecution. Uh, they had been publicly made fun of, physically hurt, and even jailed. And so uh, these other Christians had actually gone in to help them. There were uh, Christians that were being persecuted, Christians that were then attempting to help them. But in their attempt to help them, other people would come into their homes and steal their belongings 
trash the place, that kind of thing. They were being persecuted in return for helping others. But we read in the passage that they received it, they accepted it joyfully because they knew that their real and better home was someplace else. And so they're told here to continue showing love by remembering their brothers and sisters who are being mistreated. Christian love shows care for persecuted Christians then. Verse 4, moving on. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. We'll say more about that way of loving in a moment. But verse 5, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Here, one way of loving others is by resisting the love of money. So if your mind is consumed, your life is given to how to make, keep, and spend money on you and your family, you're not going to love others very well because you're consumed with another love. So instead, love others by being content. And then we're given a why. Why do all of these things? What, what, why? Back to the verse. For he, Jesus, has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. If Jesus says that, we're told, verse 6, so we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? As we push back from this text, and we consider our pile of questions this morning of what's the big deal? Why does it matter who I sleep with? Why does that matter to God? How does this apply across generations and situations? And does, what does this specifically, practically look like in certain situations? Well, when we're starting to look at this passage with a, a wider set of lenses, something begins to emerge. We're told to love others. We're given four commandments of how to put that into practice none of which are dependent upon that person's merits. It's not based on whether or not they've earned it. We're not told that our love here is to be set up as dependent on what we get or what the other person's qualities are. But rather, it is set as dependent on who? Every time. On who? It's dependent on Christ. It's dependent on Christ. All of the reasons for why we are to love are based on God. Reasons like, you don't know what he's up to, so show kindness. Or you're part of the body of Christ too. Or because God will judge. Or, the biggest why of all and the clearest, verse 5, for he, Jesus, has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And so he's our helper. We don't have to fear what can man do to us after all. So you see, friends, right here, we have the gospel in motion. We are to love others, not to get God's love, but because he has already loved us. This is back to our primer. Religion says, I achieve right standing with God by loving others. Grace says something quite different. In fact, 
Look at the verses right, right before this. Verse 28 and 29. They read, Therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. See, friends, God graciously decided out of his love to move us into his kingdom. He decided to love us when we were undeserving and when we were without merit of our own. And so the gospel says, I received right standing with God by grace. And so out of gratitude, I love others. Out of gratitude, we offer acceptable worship. Like verse 28 says, and here in our section, paints. Out of gratitude, I love others. That means something tremendously important for the foundation of our answer. Why are marriage and sex such a big deal? Why? Because God loves you. Why do they matter so much? Because you matter to him. You're a big deal. And it has nothing to do with how good you've been or how horrible you've been. You matter to him. He loves you simply because he chose to. That's why this is a big deal. And then the obvious reason for them, why it matters who you and I sleep with, it's because not only do you matter to him, but they matter to him. He loves them. He died for them. He gave up his treasure. He gave up the thing he valued most to win you back and them back. He gave his son. And so, yes, you matter. The person sitting next to you matters. The person you've sinned with matters. It's a big deal because God loves them. That's the answer to the question when people ask it. That's why it's a big deal. That's why it matters who you sleep with and why it matters for how we treat others and living out these commands. That's the foundational truth. I want to offer us a working principle from that then today that we can, we can hang on to. Specifically, I want to see this as we look at verse 4 in the light of this call to love others. Here's what we see. Love values boundaries. Love values boundaries. See, God loves you. You matter to him. You're a big deal to him. He loves others. They matter to him. And so it only makes sense to complete this circle and that he calls us to treat others with the kind of love that he has treated us. Now that kind of love, biblically speaking, biblical love here, as I've wanted to keep trying to instill this in us, keep trying to define this for us so that we don't lose it. Biblical love is pursuing someone else's highest best. It's pursuing someone else's highest good. And that kind of love values that God has set up boundaries. They value, it values the boundaries, not bending them or breaking them. Think of it this way. Uh, in considering this, I, I came across a story that uh, author and pastor uh, Tim Keller uh, told uh, that shares, and I think just really captures this difference of biblical love and the world's love perfectly. He, he talked about watching a, a TV drama with a man and woman who were living together. And they were arguing over whether or not they should get married. He wanted to, but she didn't. Finally, at one point in the argument, she yells at him. She says, 
Why do we need a piece of paper to love one another? I don't need a piece of paper to love you. It only complicates things. Haven't you heard or thought something like that before? Reflecting on this, uh, Keller writes, and excuse the length, it's a little bit long, but it's too good not to share. He writes, I have heard essentially the same thing from younger adults for years. When the woman said, I don't need a piece of paper to love you, she was using a very specific definition of love. Aha. She was assuming that love is, in its essence, a particular kind of feeling. She was saying, I feel romantic passion for you, and the piece of paper doesn't enhance that at all, and it may hurt it. She was measuring love mainly by how emotionally desirous she was for his affection. And she was right. The legal piece of paper would do little or nothing directly to add to the feeling. But when biblical, when the Bible speaks of love, it measures it primarily not by how much you want to receive, but by how much you are willing to give of yourself to someone. How much are you willing to lose for the sake of this person? How much of your freedom are you willing to forsake? And for that, the marriage vow is not just helpful, but it's even a test. In so many cases, when one person says to another, I love you, but let's not ruin it by getting married, the person really means, I don't love you enough to close off all my options. I don't love you enough to give myself to you thoroughly. To say, I don't need a piece of paper to love you, is to basically say, my love for you has not reached the marriage level. Friends, love, pursuing someone else's highest good, values boundaries. And as verse 4 points out, that love for others places a great value on the boundaries of marriage and the marriage bed. Let's consider the working principle here from each of those angles, and we'll see it across generations and situations. The boundary of marriage. Verse 4 says, let marriage be held in honor among all. So when it comes to the boundary of marriage, everyone, regardless of your age or your relational status, is to honor marriage. A lifelong covenant between one man and one woman, come what may. The word for honor here has the idea of placing great value on something. It sees it as being costly, as being important, as being special. And so when it comes to marriage here, it's placing out of love a high value or importance on the boundary of marriage. Some practical implications of valuing marriage then for specific situations, such as divorce. If we value marriage, then divorce should be grievous to us. If we value marriage, then with situations like political policies that twist its meaning, that they should be something that we oppose doing out of love for others. And when it comes to the situation of living together, we may not have known completely, we knew to one extent or another, that carrying on as if we were married without making that commitment was wrong or a bad idea, but I don't know that we realized the message that we were sending to the other. The message that As Keller writes here, I want you romantically, but I don't want to close off all my options. The idea that I want to try before I buy isn't loving, as it doesn't value 
the boundary of marriage or the marriage bed. I doubt we realized the full extent of what we were doing. But listen, friends, we can unintentionally shipwreck our relationship. I want you to hang on to that. We can unintentionally shipwreck our relationship. Do you realize that? We can hurt our relationship with others unintentionally. It's like driving a car down the road without regard for those squiggly little yellow lines there. If we ignore them, we can cause great harm to others without much intention when we don't value boundaries. Well, I think back through Christian couples that I've known who were living together and worked with. They often ended up there through reasons of finances, family, and convenience. Finances, family, and convenience. And although they knew something wasn't right and they felt guilty, I don't think that they often knew completely how in living together that they weren't honoring marriage, that it wasn't loving to anyone involved, and that they weren't helping their relationship either. And if that's you this morning, if that's where you're at, I want you to know, living together won't take you where you want to go. It, it won't take you where you want to go. And you don't want to keep living under God's judgment in any sense for sin. So change course. Repent. And this week, I know this is a harder challenge, but I want to encourage you to contact the church. Call, email, send a carrier pigeon, whatever it takes. I don't know. But get in touch with one of our pastors. And I can tell you, in humility, truth, and love, we will come alongside you and show you how to walk through this issue and how to enter into a place that honors God and the boundaries he's set up. All right? Now, we still have a second boundary that was brought up here. We have the marriage bed. Uh, a week or two ago, my son Judah, he saw the, the title of one of the, the books I was reading for this message. And, uh, and he, he just, he read it out loud. He said, uh, you know, read the, the title off, why does God care who you sleep with? And then he just started laughing. <laughs> He's eight. He's a fairly innocent boy. And he doesn't have any other definition for sleep with other than his 7.30 bedtime with his two other brothers and their bunk beds. Well, ironically enough, though, uh, in our text, uh, where it says, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, the phrase marriage bed here is simply a euphemism for sex or marital sex. And the call to love here is in valuing that boundary line of sex with purity. That purity is loving and it places a high value on sex. And the warning I believe that we, we need to hear as a church today is not to settle when it comes to purity. So I think Christians, um, that for us, it's easy in a culture that is demeaning and devaluing marriage to settle for a decent working relationship rather than living into the call of love and respect that we see displayed in Ephesians chapter 5. I think it's easy for us to settle 
for something else. But when we get and we practice that kind of love, as the Bible calls for in marriage, let me tell you, we get why it's costly, don't we? We get then why it should be honored because of the high cost. And in a culture that is cheapening sex and exercising less and less modesty to the point where everything is trying to use the angle of sexy to sell, and it only cares about the boundary lines of mutual consent and age, that we Christians can settle for only barring blatant pornography rather than pressing into the robust purity that is a part of our identity as followers of Jesus Christ. We were called as sons and daughters of God to something so much deeper, something so much better. Now again, There's some practical implications here of loving others by valuing God's boundary line of purity with with the marriage bed. And for starters, if you're married, loving your spouse by valuing the boundary line of sex means that just like with our love in marriage, your approach should not be defined by what you can get, but what you can give A love that pursues a full and robust idea of purity in marital sex sees sex as giving of your whole self to one another. That's love. As Sam Albury writes, to reduce sex to being a means of getting pleasure is actually to hold back from someone what is meant to be complete, permanent, and exclusive form of self-giving. We might think that we're giving someone the gift of a sexual relationship, but if we're not giving our whole self to them fully, then our gift turns out to be a lot cheaper than it first appeared. Husbands and wives, with sex, your thoughts, words, and actions are to be directed to one another only and carried out in a way that, yes, receives from the other, but is also pursuing the other's highest, best by giving of your whole self to them. To that end, consider a couple of questions here for sex and during sex. First, where are my thoughts? This is crucial. Where are my thoughts? Second, are my words building the other up or tearing them down? Are my words building the other up or turning them down? Third, are my actions or the actions I'm wanting to receive kind towards the other? Are my actions or the actions I'm wanting to receive kind, showing kindness towards the other? I want to encourage you to talk about those questions with your spouse and help them guide you towards pursuing your spouse's best with what is pure. And remember, that anything that pulls your thoughts, words, or actions away from them and away from what is loving and pure should be something that we put away or we flee from, period. Now, for those of us in addition, we're not married. We have something more to also add on here. You may be carrying with you, married or not, a lot of baggage 
from brokenness in this area of sexuality. It may be the result of your own sin or someone else's sin or, or just living in a broken world or most likely a combination thereof. And yes, the cause matters. As the verse lays out, God will judge the sexually immoral, which is kind of a, a catch-all term here, and adulterous. So not every form of sin and brokenness is being addressed here, but I want you to know that whatever the cause of the brokenness, that it doesn't need to go unaddressed. You don't need to be suffocating under a blanket of shame and guilt. Why? Well, that takes us back to the beginning. To answer it, it takes us back to the beginning. Because God loves you. That's the answer. You matter to him. And so that means that even if you are the one who has been the cause of the brokenness, you matter to God. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11 reminds us of the view that God has of our Christian community. This is the way that God looks at the church. It says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were justified. And you were sanctified by the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Friends, no matter how broken you are or the consequences you're under from ignoring these boundaries, if you've placed your trust in Jesus, then the situation has changed. And this is now about living out who you already are and into the promises of a new identity. And by all means, by all means, counseling can be tremendously helpful. Being discipled by an older and mature follower of Jesus Christ can be very beneficial. Diving into resources like Finally Free by Heath Lambert and Captivating by Stacey Eldridge can be great resources. But you know, we can even start here by just taking hold of the promise in this text. Let it sink in for us. Verse 5. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And so we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. You know, friends, the first time I read that passage, I thought, what can man do to me? (laughs) Seems like a whole lot. He can hurt me. He can tempt me. He can take my stuff. He can abuse me. He can hurt my family. He can hurt my church family. He can crush my community. He can injure my nation. And in all of his fury, he can even take my life. It would seem that man can do a whole lot. But you know what? As a follower of Jesus, the Lord is my helper. He's my ally. And whatever problem I face, in temptation, pain, and even in my sin, his promise remains. I will never leave you, nor forsake you. And so if you belong to him, if that's you, 
I can tell you this morning what man can do to you. Nothing that will ever separate you from the love of God. And nothing that at its very worst will not bring you into the forever lasting joy of God, of being with him. Friends, hang on to this promise. It's a promise of God in a world God mad, a promise that's very much like the promise of marriage, that God will hold on to you, come what may. That's our promise. Let's pray. Father, from your word this morning, we want to pray this morning in confidence and faith, claiming this promise that you'll never leave us or forsake us. And so, God, this morning, I want to pray for the prodigals in here this morning, watching online or seeing this later, or the ones that are simply on our hearts and minds right now. God, I want to pray that for those who have run far from you, that they would know the promise of yours. That if they're they're your child, you promise to never leave them, never forsake them, and that you are standing there with arms wide open, calling them back to yourself, offering to be their helper, offering to take their pain, offering to ease their burden and to begin to change their life. God, we claim that our identity as your children is as one who is justified, sanctified, who is in Christ, that we are forever secure. So Lord, help us to turn and help us to speak words of life, truth, and love to the prodigals we know. We pray that in your name. Amen.